Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts. I have said that secret and the revealed, though distinct, are still related. And it is important to remember this, that God's seal of secrecy is often found in the very midst of things that are already wholly revealed. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they deliver. Today, we're hearing a sermon from Joseph Parker. It would have been preached in London in the 1870s. Joel, sometimes if you listen to Revive Thoughts, you may know that we're big fans of Charles Spurgeon. We've done several episodes by Charles Spurgeon. And by the way we do those episodes, you may be surprised to learn that there are actually other churches in London in the late 1800s. And not only are there other churches, there are actually other very big churches competing with Spurgeon's Church. Spurgeon's Church is famously the largest church in the British Empire at that time, at the height of the British Empire, but his church is not the only church in town. In fact, there were very, it was a very direct rival to him known as Joseph Parker, and they are very direct rivals, and they actually have very similar stories, these two men. And so, we're going to bring you a sermon from him and let you hear his story and just kind of hear the crossovers and actually hear about a very special interaction these two men had as well. Yeah, this is actually really a fascinating one. I've always been curious to learn more about Joseph Parker, contemporary with Charles Spurgeon at that time, friends at, at you know, through many pockets of, of their lives together. Um, but yet, it's it's interesting how we know Charles Spurgeon's name but Joseph Parker's name far less known. He was born in 1830, son of a stonemason, right? Last week we talked about Richard Sibbs. He was the son of a wheelmaker. Uh, Joseph Parker is the son of a stonemason, uh, much like Richard Sibbs. He, he didn't follow in his father's footsteps. He went into theology, and he was self-taught. He, he didn't go to a seminary and this is this is we see this a lot in this day and age it's pretty common in this era we're talking like late 1800s right uh dl moody samuel p jones charles spurgeon of course henry lydon all of these people did not have a formal bible education they they were people that picked up books and studied and were dedicated uh, and learned theology that way one day in 1848 uh, it was said that he went to this open air meeting and he hadn't planned to preach, but it was one of these events where, you know, like they're inviting people to come up and preach and, and share your heart and stuff like that. And uh, he went up, he preached a sermon uh, from that passage in the Bible that says, it was easier for Tyre and Sidon than it is for you from the Gospels there. And after that, he he felt that God was just calling him to preach, to, to be, you know, that public speaking gift that uh, so few people have. One key difference between him and a Spurgeon would be kind of their their relationships with mentors. Spurgeon did have some mentors, but we see Joseph Harker really seeking out mentors and, and going out and after finding them uh, to disciple him and mentor him in that way. And uh, it has a huge impact for the better in his life. Uh, he did get married to um, at a very young age, which similar to Spurgeon that way. Uh, he got married to Anne Nesbitt, 
around that time when he was seeking that mentor, just kind of in that phase of his life. She had a huge impact on him. He credited her with the reason he became the man that he was and that she led him and just kind of helped him to actually take his faith seriously. At the time when he met her, he was just a kind of local small town preacher who lived in like a tiny room inside of a farmhouse. He didn't have like a Uh, you know, a big future ahead of him. He was just that kind of local guy that did the Sunday night services. But when they got married, she kind of encouraged him to keep going deeper and deeper. Sadly, they would not be married um, forever. They would only be married for 12 years. And when she died, he said he had basically lost, you know, the delight of his soul. Very sad um, for him at that time. Now, he was also a little bit known as kind of a bit of a political guy, but politics back in the 1800s, pretty different than ours. His Uh, He was pro-temperance. He was saying, hey, we need to, you know, get off of all this alcohol. Look at what it's doing to our families. And he was pro-abolition. There were a lot of British people who had big opinions on abolition, especially while the Americans were having the Civil War. And he was a big fan of abolition, getting rid of that kind of thing, moving past that. Now, while he was kind of making these rounds, doing the local church scene, he wrote an email. Or no, he wrote an email. He wrote an email. He wrote an email, which was really impressive. <laughs> he wrote a uh, he wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to Dr. John Campbell. It was kind of a guy running a bigger church at the time, Whitfield Tabernacle. You know, George Whitfield's old church at the time. He's been dead, but this is the guy who replaced him. You know, several several people down the line, and. He kind of asked him, like, hey, you know, can I come and learn from you? Can you mentor me and help me to do this? And he he agreed. So he became his assistant for a few years. During that time, he started to get a little bit more education. Now, remember, he's already been preaching and teaching for a while. He's already a self-taught guy. But he started to take some lectures uh, and learn some things from the local college. And by the end of his days, he will have been given a doctorate of divinity from the University of Chicago, which I'm not sure how he did that, per se. Maybe I should have researched harder. I only did online school back in that time wasn't really a thing so <laughs> I don't know if he like sent them papers by mail or what whatever he got a he got a doctorate degree from the University of Chicago um, during that time too so even though he was self-taught in his early days as he got older he did go to school now after that he moved from church to church for a while until he finally ended up at a very famous church at the time it was a church founded by Thomas Goodwin a Puritan from the 1600s, whom we have not actually covered yet, so somebody will put on our list that we need to get in there. Um, But he kind of took over for his church, the big, famous old church, and when he got there, he really settled in. He came up with like a building plan. They were going to expand the church, give it a new name, uh, call it City Temple, and they were going to make this the church. And this was going to be the large, big church competition right in the middle of London that would go up against Spurgeon's church at the same time. Yeah, and Joseph, Parker, and Spurgeon, they had moments where they were friends. They had moments when they were enemies. Throughout their lives, they had a, an interesting relationship. I like to think of them as friends in the end. I was going to agree. I think I think. They they were overall friends, but they may, but sometimes you just have that little bit of a rivalry going on at the yeah. same time. I, I think they were buddies. It's not, not Through buddies. the good times and the bad. They, yeah. they were seen as sometimes, though, having, like, literal shouting public fights that, you know, that were out in public for people to see. The, probably the most famous instance of this, and it's, an, it's a neat story. It's a heartwarming story. Joseph Parker was at one of Charles Spurgeon's orphanages and he he thought the conditions were a bit lack and he thought that there's something they could do a little bit more about uh keeping these kids in better conditions and so he was making comments about the conditions of 
this orphanage and in his, you know he was meaning it to be more of a you know let's do something about this you know what can we do to, to help with these conditions but the way that it was reported on the way the media took it and the news they kind of turned it into Parker attacking Spurgeon and his orphanages and kind of blaming Spurgeon for uh, needs that were at this north for the for the condition that it was in and Spurgeon you know after after seeing these reports after seeing the newspapers and reading this from the pulpit he essentially attacked Parker. He really let him have it. He was not happy with Parker's remarks or, or, you know, what he was perceiving to be Parker's remarks in the way that these newspapers were reporting on his orphanages. And, you know, these famous preachers, especially in this area, you get really passionate. It's, it's, you know, it's very uh, verbose and, and theatrical at times. But he, he saw it as a personal friend, a man that he had shared pulpits with, now attacking his beloved orphans. And Parker w- was asked if he would respond to Spurgeon from the pulpit the, the following Sunday, right? You know, next next week when you get to preach, Parker, are you going to address these comments that Spurgeon made about you? And he said he was going to. And so this whole week, the town was buzzing. You know, everyone was getting ready. There were crowds of people showing up to see what Parker was going to say. There was media. There was reporters all around ready to take down notes, ready to report on what this relationship was going to be between Parker and Joseph. And uh, Joseph, when he got up to the pulpit, he he said, hey, you know, uh, Spurgeon, he's sick today. He can't preach at his own church. And this is the day in in which he usually collects offerings for his orphans. Uh, And since he's sick today and and unable to do that, uh, might I suggest that we take up offerings for him and his church because he's doing a, a great work. And I know that all of you would like to have a part in it. All of the congregants, you know, he's implying, would like to be a part of what Spurgeon's doing there with the or- orphans. And the crowd went wild. And, you know, they loved this. It was unexpected, the show of love and kindness. Uh, you know, and it was genuine. It's, this, isn't, this isn't like petty politics or, you know, a, a petty game there. He's genuinely saying, hey, you know, let's turn this beef into something that benefits uh, and solves the initial, <laughs> the initial thought, the initial complaint that I had, and the money came flowing in. They filled the offering baskets to overflowing three different times. And a few days later, Spurgeon came by his office to surprise him with, with a hug. And Spurgeon said, "This is a quote: You have more of the spirit of Jesus Christ than any man I know. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You've given me not what I deserve. You've given me what I needed." which is a, a nice a nice sentiment, a nice happy ending uh, to what was, it seems like just kind of a misunderstanding, little rivalry there that um, seems like he resolved and played off in, in a great way. It does. Uh, I mean, there's lots of lessons in that story. You go to don't always believe rumors that you hear. You know, there are people always mm-hmm. sensationalizing things. Men like Spurgeon and Parker are going to be passionate, so they'll defend themselves, but they're not always, you know, there's so many little things. But what I really like about it, too, uh, and this is just a side note. I, I don't know that I've ever read about it, but I always kind of thought, and we now know that Spurgeon was a hugger. You know, he's the kind of guy who's going to give you a hug. He just kind of gave off that vibe, and now we know. We have it in confirmation of the story that that's what he's yeah. going to do with you. Now, this is especially a great moment between the two of them. And likewise, Parker was, uh, you know, was also not, was, was, was honored by Spurgeon multiple times. He would end up preaching at Spurgeon's 50th birthday party, which I guess back then they had sermons for birthday parties, which is something, I, I don't know if I've ever been to a birthday party where someone got up. I don't, and, I don't know how well that would fly today. I, I, maybe we should, right? Surprise! Here's the preacher. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone settle in. Here's a 45-minute sermon. 
that would be really um, unexpected if nothing else. But uh, they get into um, they do get into some public theology fights, especially towards the end of their life, how their churches are doing things and just stuff like that. So they don't they are not as quite as friendly at the end of their days. But when uh, Spurgeon dies, Parker will you know will get the new you know the the newspapers ask him if he has any thoughts, and he says. His simplicity, his constancy, his standstillness won for him through many difficulties a unique and invincible position in the Christian England. He also said something in another quote, I believe, something to the effect of the only man that will be remembered after this century has just passed away. So he was also acknowledging like he's going to be more famous than myself. Uh, Not the only man that was remembered, but certainly did stand out. Despite all these fights, they did respect each other. And it wasn't just, by the way, Spurgeon. There were other, we've said before, if we could go in a time machine, go back in time and just hear sermons for a summer, we would go back in this time. We would listen to Spurgeon. We would listen to Parker. But you could listen to so many other great men too. Lydon, Talmadge. Um, you could listen to Alexander White and Alexander McLaren, whom also have quotes about uh, Parker, how much they respected him, how much they thought he was a really top-notch uh, preacher during his time. He had a bit of a different style. Spurgeon and him were both very, you know, they would both throw their voices, they would both act, they were dramatic, they would have a flair, they would have a passion. One of the criticisms against Parker was that he seemed a little bit more of an egotist. He would maybe put himself out there a little bit more, whereas Spurgeon was always known for his humility. So that could be one of the criticisms of him. Parker didn't like to preach with uh, notes or a manuscript. He did all of his preaching basically with a tiny little note card with a couple of bullet points, and he would just go off the cuff. He believed in um, preaching without those notes, letting the Holy Spirit guide you through the sermon. And so when you listen to the sermon that's been written down that we're, we're going to be listening to in a few minutes, you have to remember that he didn't write this down beforehand. This all came, not came to him. He probably studied it and prepared it, but this was all from off the cuff, not a manuscript he had prepared for himself. On the other side of it, too, Joseph Parker was uh, considered just a really, had a very more kind of calm style in comparison to Spurgeon's as well. So, there, you know, not every preacher is the same. His was just very different, and his was more quiet and calm. When he was not in the pulpit, he was seen as a very, you know, relaxed and more quiet man. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think one of the big things, though, that keeps Joseph Parker's name from being remembered today is he did not have the right person succeed him. So whereas we've talked about how Charles Spurgeon had a big deal, if you go back to our episode on Thomas Spurgeon, how Thomas Spurgeon took his place for a while, and there was a lot of drama and like very careful precision, uh, Joseph Parker didn't know he was going to die. And so he picked a man named Reginald John Campbell, not to be confused with the John Campbell from before, but a young man, Reginald John Campbell, and was planning to mentor him like he had been mentored and lead him on the path. Uh, Joseph Parker took a very conservative, orthodox, you know, old school style, was big time into biblical inerrancy and all these other things. 
But the Reginald John Campbell gentleman was a little more open to those other things, and I think that might have been something that Joseph Parker was planning to mentor him out of. But unexpectedly, Joseph Parker died before he ever got the chance. He, you know, kind of hired this young guy at the end of 1902, and he passed away. And unexpectedly, in 1903, everyone knew that Reginald John Campbell was going to be his successor. But again, he was probably expecting to have years and years to train. And this is a common thing back then, actually. There were a lot of people who were trained by big famous names that came before and after them. We mentioned that um, on other episodes. You can see those kind of people who kind of guide the next guy into their place and how useful and good they can be. But in this case, we see a, cha- a time when Parker didn't get to do that. Reginald John Campbell was a bit more of it, was, was, I mean, pretty much kind of a socialist. He was very open to new ideas about the Bible. He within a couple of years gave up biblical inerrancy. He soon questioned if we can really know anything, and soon he kind of moved into deism and even questioned whether there was a God. And at that point, I don't know if he was asked to step down or he just realized I can't be a preacher under these conditions, but he would step down from the church having a complete crisis of faith. Eventually he would come back to a faith, but he would go into the Church of England. This kind of left Parker's church, you know, it, not only saying shambles, I, other preachers have come and gone through it, but it, it, it really put a dent on his legacy that the guy who came after him did not continue that um, fight for the good things, but took completely straight off into all the um, heresies at that time that were going around. And so I think one of the big reasons why you will know Spurgeon's name today and you know Parker's name today and don't know Parker's name as well is simply just the guy who came after him didn't preserve that legacy. You know, one more person I'll mention, when we mentioned uh, Hudson Taylor, we looked at D.E. Host and how he kind of came in and helped preserve Hudson Taylor's legacy by living faithfully. And we said, like, would we know Hudson Taylor's name today if it hadn't been for that person who came in after him. In this case, Joseph Parker had that person who came in after him, didn't necessarily do such a good job, and we a lot of people don't know who Joseph Parker is today. One man said that, if you listen to Spurgeon, you wanted to become a great preacher, but if you listen to Parker, you wanted to become a great man. Let us listen to this sermon titled, Secret Things, and you can see what we can learn from a man who used no notes while he preached, but desired that God would lead him as he went. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret and the revealed, these are different but related divisions of ownership. The one division belongs to the Lord our God, the other to men and their children forever. At the very basis, then, of all our searching should be found this fact— There are certain domains of thought and power accessible to none but God. Though on one hand this fact goes around human questioning, yet on the other it gives intensity to focus and a practical value to research. I have said that secret and the revealed, though distinct, are still related. And it is important to remember this, that God's seal of secrecy is often found in the very midst of things that are already wholly revealed. One would say, for example, that nature is full of revelation, that the heavens and the earth are books wide open, that there is no law of trespass in the outward creation. But facts show us that there are many doors in nature not yet open to the eyes of science. It has pleased God to mark many doors as private and to write over many a radiant portal secret things. 
There is this then, a law of secrecy, even in the open and unwatched fields of nature. There is a limit to the ask, seek, knock of all investigations, not only in what is distinctly called prayer, but in all intellectual research in this fundamental ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. We must remember this principle, for it is very important. We imagine that prayer and spiritual benefits are alone comprehended under this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Whereas, experience demonstrates that this simple law is at the very root and core of progress of every kind. Ask, and it will be given to you, is as truly a canon in science as it is a law in religion. It is written alike in the Bible of nature and the Bible of the gospel. It is written as distinctly on the heavens and the earth as on the Solomon temple and mystic altar. And so it is with many and of the other laws of the holy book. When the ages will give birth to the seer, who will have in all its fullness and vigor, the faculty of interpretation, he will teach us that science and gospel stand on the same basis and on that the one serves the other as the younger, the firstborn. There is a, man who knows a lot about astronomy. The heavens are the pages, the worlds are the words, the systems are the sentences which he attempts to decipher, and many brilliant paragraphs he succeeds in interpreting. But how did he attain this wisdom? Why, by the old gospel plan, ask, seek, knock, by patience, often severely tried, by labor that brought sore weariness, by perseverance, often toil-worn, by this method, he became a successful translator of the heavens. So that which is called a moral platitude in religion is called philosophy and science. Every time he turns an inquiring glance on the flames burning far away in the sky, he actually stood in the attitude of one in mute prayer. Every time he points his telescope to the kindling glories of the nocturnal empire, he was asking, seeking, knocking. Every attempt he made to arrest the chariots of fire that travel forever around the king's throne, he was uttering the suppliant voice of his heart. And every true record which he entered upon his map was, in reality, an answer to his prayer. And so it goes all through science. The man who studies a plant and would charm it into releasing its secret, he who asks it, questions regarding its lineage and subjects it to impertinent and cruel analysis is a man who asks, seeks, knocks. The man who dissects the human body with a view of eliciting from the dead what he could never learn from the living, asks, seeks, knocks. These men, however, do not use this form of phraseology in describing their pursuits. They say they are studying and botanizing, atomizing, whereas they do not know that, in truth, they are praying. Why, sirs, we could not read a line upon the floral leaves if the untiring hand did not hold the light for us. We could not read the book of the stars if God did not turn over the heavens again. Yet men curl the lip of scorn at the passionate saint who on his knees is praying. They call this spiritual service platitude and ritual and hypocrisy, without knowing in their learned atheism that they themselves are saints praying at another side of the same throne. The practical point to be kept in view is this. Almighty God encourages man to ask, 
seek and knock. He has made man an inquisitive and a progressive being. He has endowed man with faculties, instincts, and abilities that yearn to transcend these minor spheres and free themselves from the burdens of an enslaving flesh. And yet, human ambition is to be regulated by divine law. But human eyes desired to take their eager eyes before the blazing splendors of the higher circles into which entrance is not yet permitted. From creation to creator, the transition is easy, and in the providential realm, the seal of privacy is not hard to find. No man can find out the work that goes from the beginning to the end. We cannot see how God interposes in every combination and rounds off every detail. We see something of him in the majesty of the heavens, but are baffled by the details which make the dewdrop as perfect a sphere as the vastest planet that burns in the canopy. And in everyday affairs of life, God is constantly working. We cannot understand God's rule of men. How should we? We are from yesterday and know nothing. Can the rustic peasant follow the rapid and brilliant maneuvers of the veteran warrior whose nod sways an army? Can your infant comprehend the shallowest mystery of your lawmakers? Would you go to the deaf for an estimate of how in tune an instrument is? How then should we, who are unlearned travelers through a world so diverse, attempt to arrange the divine procedures and determine the direct course of its hidden purposes? Yes, wonderful are the things inside the divine intent. You laid your plans. You boldly proposed a bright future. You saw light gleaming out of every line and beauty blushing around every footprint. And yet an invisible hand overturned your glittering temple and plowed up its deep foundations. In walking down the highway, you unwittingly changed sides. You knocked at the wrong door when looking for your friend. In sorting your letters for the mail, you mismatched some of the letters and envelopes. Or you had long set your heart on a certain journey and had made much patient preparation for it, but on the appointed morning, you were under the grasp of a terrible, sudden illness. You could not understand these things at the time. Some of them were so simple as to have no meaning, and others were so harsh as to seem malicious. But time disclosed the golden chain by which all these circumstances, simple and complex, were linked to the eternal throne. You were amazed that events so trivial could have shown purposes so great and that affliction so cruel could have led to the very threshold of the kingdom of God. But the great worker disdains nothing. He holds everything at high value. A dewdrop may reflect a planet. An atom may be necessary to the completion of a temple. And out of so common a thing as the dust of the earth, God fashioned the magnificent temple of manhood. And so out of the ordinary and trivial things of life, he molds the stupendous realities of destiny. You say that you cannot understand all these things. And I answer, it is quite unnecessary that you should understand as much as God intended you to understand and then leave the rest. What do you do when in reading the massive books of ancient English authors, you find passages written in an unknown tongue? Paragraph after paragraph you read with all possible fluency, instantly apprehending the author's purpose when suddenly the writer throws before you a handful of Latin or a handful of Greek. What then? Well, if you're absorbed by the interest of the book, you eagerly look out for the next paragraph in English and continue your pursuits of the learning thought. 
Do likewise with God's wondrous book by providence. Much of it is written in your own tongue, in large lettered English, so to speak. Read that. Master its deep significance and leave the passages of unknown language until you are farther advanced in rugged literature of life. Until you are older and better scholars in God's school. The day of interpretation will assuredly come. A beam will strike right through the baffling mystery. In the meantime, there should be a sweet rest in the reflection that secret things belong to the Lord our God. And we do not have to go far to go until we confront the deeper secrets of redemption. Great is the mystery of godliness. All the mysteries of nature and providence are as the riddles of childhood compared with the all-absorbing problems of the atonement. The cross is the meeting place of the highest intelligence. Seraph and cherub fold their wings and sit in wonder within the shadow of the shameful tree. Pilate's superscription in Hebrew and Greek and Latin, we can decipher. But the writing of that other hand, like the hand that wrote on Belshazzar's proud walls, that hand so awfully distinct, yet so rapid, so delicate, as to be something between a thought and a thing, the writing of that other we cannot read in all the depth and scope of existence. The oldest wisdom looks on and wonders. Sages with wrinkled brows look on and wonder, and even angels desire to look into these dark developments of love. But though mysteries culminate in the cross, yet there is enough revealed in the cross for man's present pardon and his final attainment in heavenly immortality. The secret things are not ours. The revealed things are. We don't have to focus on top of the ladder which is lost in the haze of the heavens as with the foot of it which rests on the earth. And we do not see so much the bright angel ministers who throng his throne as with the messages of mercy and hymns of hope which escape their tuneful lips. A fool is he who, in running from a town in flames, will not cross the river until he has inspected the architecture of the bridge and has discovered its origin and the date of its building. Run away from the pursuing flames, you would tell him. Do not slow down until you are far beyond its range. And then afterwards, if you please, discuss your speculations concerning the bridge. The illustration may be applied to the sinner who wishes to escape from his sin. His first business is to begin to practice all that he doesn't understand, to manifest an attitude to accept all the arrangements of divine wisdom, and in childlike trust to give himself up to God. The cross has a side that is secret, and a side that is revealed, a side that shines towards God, and a side that shines towards the sinning world. In lights the heavens as well as the earth, but man's whole business now is to accept the beam which falls upon him and in its light to penetrate his way to higher and better spheres. This then is our fundamental point, that there are certain domains of thought and government accessible to none but God. An additional remark is this, impenetrable secrecy is compatible with paternal kindness. We have come to associate secrecy with selfishness, yet all nature proves that in the divine works, impenetrable secrecy may coexist with paternal love. As rapidly as you point me to the mystery, I point you in return to the Father. Do you say that God keeps to himself the mysteries of the Son? I answer, he turns upon you the full revelation of the light. 
does he keep his own breast, the secret of the life's beginning? See, he gives you the revelation of golden harvest. The spring kept the secret in her heart, but autumn poured her bounty down at your feet. Enough is kept back to prove the power. Enough is given to establish the mercy. It is right. It is necessary that the father should know more than the child. And is the father less a father because of the superior knowledge? Is not his very superiority of knowledge one of his highest qualifications for performing the duties of being a father? Mystery is the seal of the infinite. If you are clinging to the parchment which you call your works to go to heaven, I pronounce it invalid, illegal, worthless. If this seal is absent, all through, from Eden's word of hope to Calvary's cry, it is finished, and Bethany, go you into all the world, all through, I say. Great is the mystery of godliness, yet kindness guides man around the base of the dread mountain of mystery. You can imagine an old man tottering with the weakness of a weary lifetime and wandering in the darkness on which no summer sun could shed the light of morning. He is a blind man, blind from his birth, never saw God's outer robe of many colors. He never saw God's shadowed outline on his own mother's face. You have seen such a man led along the busy highway by a little child to whose young, bright eyes he committed himself in hope and faith. I am that poor blind wanderer through the way of God's mysteries. And that little guide represents the kindness, the mercy, the tenderness with which God leads me from horizon to horizon until I stand around the encircling glories of the perfect revelation. The most common mercy of the day, time flames up into a fire, a guide that lights me through the gloom and trouble of the night. The speculative thinker, looks at the mystery, and forgets the kindness. The very wealth of God makes us envious. Does poverty provoke envy? We do not look so much at what God has given as to what he might have given. We read the love through the mystery rather than the mystery through the love. Men like to peer into the hidden things. They flatter it. They exalt it. They say, it is good for food and pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise. And, having raised themselves up into this delusive appreciation of its value, they put out the thievish hand to take it. And the fancied blessings turn to a scorpion sting. Do not be anxious over your course of study. The volumes will be given by the great librarian, one by one. Understand what you can, and in doing it, you will increase in knowledge. Understand that in all the worlds of folly, there could be no greater fool than he who will not believe his father's telegram simply because he does not understand the mystery of the telegraph. Divine secrecy is no plea for human disobedience. Those things that which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. In these words, we have one, an acknowledgement of a divine revelation. Those things which are revealed. Two, a definition of the relationship in which God stands to humankind. All the words of this law. Law? Then God is our lawgiver. All the moral institutes issue from his wisdom. There is one lawgiver. All that man lays down as law is, as so far as is right, is only a modification or interpretation of God's own word of government. When I ask for evidence of God's existence, wisdom, and power, men 
point me to all the stars of heaven and say that these glittering letters proclaim the majesty of the Most High. True. Yet, in such a word as, you will love your neighbor as yourself, I find a more satisfying testimony to Christ's Godhead than in all the wonders of his physical empire. I like to read the revelation of his hand, but far better is the revelation of his heart. I am awestruck when the sea storm pauses in its wrath like a child, but even more thrilled when a holier, tender ecstasy, when the wild and lost heart calls him in sweet submission and loving loyalty, Lord and God. Three, a distinct recognition of man's power to obey, that we may do all the words. Religion has its contemplative side, but also its sterner side of action. The architect supplies the builder with the plan of the mansion. All the great lines are there, and all the lines of detail, every angle, every curve, every combination. For what purpose does the architect supply the blueprints? Let us see. The builder takes the elaborate drawing, admires it, frames it in gold, hangs it in his chief room, and points it out to every guest. Was that the purpose for which the blueprint was created? Wouldn't the architect have a good reason to be angry and ignorant at the builder? The builder may have shown great admiration of the plan and may even have done it some little honor. But where is the mansion? And we have done the same with God's holy law. We have published it in letters of gold and we have bound it in the richest Moroccan leather. Genus, art, taste have conspired to beautify and adorn and decorate the sacred book. But where is the mansion of a noble, majestic, holy, and perfect manhood? We receive the law that we might do it. Having failed in that, our admiration is hypocrisy, and our loudest applause is a thunderous lie. You must no longer regard divine secrecy as a plea for human disobedience. The law book is the judgment book. Every day is a day of judgment. Any man may now tell whether he is brightening into an angel or darkening and shriveling into a devil. Inquisitiveness into secret things will necessarily produce great unrest. I must leave this point without expansion. The practical comfort to all saints is this. What you don't know now, you will know soon. Hope is not cut off. It is merely deferred. There will be a breaking of the sun through all heavy, sullen threatening clouds. We know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect comes, then that which is in part will be done away with. What hope rings in this word of promise? When that which is perfect comes, is the thrilling chorus of to the song of the Christian lifelong toil. He sings it in the morning light when the unknown and unexplored day calls him to its companionship. He sings it under the glittering of the evening star. When the mistakes and misfortunes of the day are all reminding him that he knows only in part, he lifts his wet and swollen eyes from many a spoiled page and says with a sob of distress, yet a tone of struggling gladness, when that which is perfect has come, he recovers himself with many a spasm of godly passion and takes heart at the words, when that which is perfect has come. He pillows his aching head upon this promise, knowing that the morning of revelation and completeness is advancing. This is our duty. We do the law. We leave the mystery. 
and we rest in the hope which brings no shame. This sermon is titled Secret Things, and Joseph uh, Parker here makes the point that you know, there are some things that are just for God to know. And I think that's very difficult for a lot of us, especially modern people. We like to know the answers to everything, especially hard things. We think that, well, you know, a lot of us by our knowledge, we're, you know, we're, that makes us better people, right? You're a better, you're a better person if you have more knowledge than others. And Parker is saying like, look, there are some things you just don't get to know in God's plan and God's kingdom and how these things work. And accepting that is a good thing. And he said that even goes beyond just the theology. That just goes to the physical limits of the world as well. There are some things about life, and we just don't have the answers to them. And the sooner we embrace that um, is the better. It's a, it's a humbling thing to understand that God has a plan that's working out outside of our understanding and our control. And to let him do even things that we're not sure about, don't understand how it comes together, but to trust him for it, that's part of what our duty is as Christians, to not know all the answers, to not see all the future things, but to trust God that he is going to handle them, even the big complaints that we have, that they are being worked out outside of our understanding, but according to his plan. Thank you for listening to Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker. Patrick is one of the hosts of Cave to the Cross podcast, also makes appearances on our uh, Church History Trivia Nights. Uh, You can check him out at Cave to the Cross. You can search that podcast in your podcast app of choice. Joseph Parker, we hope you learned a lot about him and his friendship with Charles Spurgeon and just kind of that friendship relationship they had going on. If you have some friends, they might enjoy listening to Revived Thoughts, and you should send them this episode and uh, link to it and tell them about what we are doing here at Revive Studios. And uh, yeah, just let them know what's going on. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Mm-hmm.